This is Dana Thomas, and you're listening to The Green Dream, a podcast about how to green up your life. Climate change is bearing down on us like a mighty hurricane, and it's scary as hell, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dana Thomas, a leading voice in the sustainable fashion movement. On The Green Dream, I welcome global experts, creators, and change makers from politics, business, and the arts for dynamic conversations on how you can green up your life. The Green Dream is the podcast of hope. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, at its flagship boutique, 384 Bleecker Street in New York City, and at select stores. This episode is also sponsored by Phlox, a personal style consultancy and high fashion vintage retailer where responsible fashion meets creativity, individuality, and beauty. Developing your own personal style and buying what's you is the key to sustainability. Phlox presents timeless modern vintage clothes with a heavy dose of glamour. To shop and learn about available services, visit Phlox, that's P-H-L-O-X dot com or follow them on Instagram at Flocks Slow Fashion. My guest today on The Green Dream is Natalie Channon, founder of Alabama Channon, a slow fashion brand in Florence, Alabama. Slow fashion is exactly as it sounds, a growing movement of makers, designers, merchants, and manufacturers who in response to fast fashion and globalization have significantly dialed back their pace and financial ambition, freeing themselves to focus more on creating items with inherent value, curating the customer experience, and reducing environmental impact. This quiet revolution is also driven by the desire to improve the quality of life for their families and their employees. Slow fashion champions localization and regionalism rather than massification. It honors craftsmanship and respects tradition while embracing modern technology to make production cleaner and more efficient. It's about treating your workers well, and as Natalie told me from my book, Fashionopolis, buying from the person down the street whose face you know and love. I first met Natalie in 2004 at the Chateau Marmont Hotel in West Hollywood. She was there promoting her company, and I was there working on my first book, Deluxe. Natalie sat on the mid-century modern sofa of the bungalow and taught my four-year-old how to sew. To start, she showed us a practice called loving the thread. She'll explain what loving the thread is later in this episode. Natalie is a native of Florence, which is across the river from R&B recording mecca, Muscle Shoals. You know, where Leonard Skinner recorded Freebird, the Rolling Stones did Brown Sugar, and Aretha Franklin recorded all those great hits. During Natalie's youth, Florence was the cotton t-shirt capital of the world. Ralph Lauren, Tommy Hilfiger, and Walt Disney all produced there. After the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, was enacted in 1994, Florence, like much of the textile-driven South, plunged into financial and social crisis. In 1993, 5,000 worked in this two-block radius, Natalie told me when I visited her factory a few years ago. And that didn't include all the service industries, restaurants, daycare centers, gas stations. There used to be 20 dye houses in this town. 
When manufacturing collapsed here, everything collapsed. Natalie briefly left all that behind. She first went to New York and joined a 7th Avenue junior sportswear brand. Then she moved to Europe to work as a stylist for music videos. She returned to New York in the early 2000s and launched her own company, refashioning vintage T-shirts with unusual embroideries that had exposed knots and dangling threads. A quilting stitch, she realized, just like the ladies did back in Florence, Alabama. In 2006, Natalie moved her business back home and embraced what her fellow Florentine, the singer-songwriter John Paul White, calls the nurturing benefits of a small town. Everything at Alabama Channon is made to order, sewed by local seamstresses. Channon concedes that implementing a more ethical business model hasn't always been the most lucrative way to run her company, and there are times that she says she misses the deeper connection to the industry and the heartbeat of what's happening in design in America. But the advantages of being hyper-local outweigh that. She is 100% self-owned and has no debt. She invests in young people and trains them well. Her business practice is zero waste, and she has a deep commitment to her community. This year, Alabama Channon is celebrating its 21st year in business with a new book called Embroidery, Threads and Stories from Alabama Channon and the School of Making, about sustainability, community, artisans, and makers, published by Abrams. The preface was written by Natalie's friend, the singer-songwriter Roseanne Cash. They met through a mutual friend some years ago. In 2012, Roseanne and her husband, John Leventhal, took a long road trip through the Mississippi Delta and stopped in for a visit with Natalie in Florence. Afterward, Roseanne and John wrote a song called A Feather's Not a Bird about the trip and Alabama Channon. The song, Roseanne writes in the book, led to more songs and became an album called The River and the Thread, which won three Grammys in 2014, including Best American Roots Song for A Feather's Not a Bird. Roseanne and John have kindly given us permission to play it. Natalie Channon, welcome to The Green Dream. Where are you this morning? Where are you talking to us from? I'm in my home office in Florence, Alabama. It's beautiful. Lots of books behind you and <laughs> and lots of sunshine. Yeah, I'm a bit of a book hoarder, so this is just a little bit of the massive collection. You're one of the great proponents of slow fashion. Can you tell our listeners what slow fashion is? Well, you know, it really grew out of this slow food movement, this idea of things being produced as locally or regionally as possible, you know, adherence as closely as possible to organic standards, living wage, community investment in the process, I would say, is, is a really big part of that. And how do you apply that to Alabama Channon? How does that translate in your company? You're based in Florence, Alabama, which is in Muscle Shoals. And you're a direct-to-consumer mostly. Are you 100% direct-to-consumer now? No, we have a few wholesale accounts, but our primary business is direct-to-consumer. And you're made to order. Yes, we are. We produce very few items in advance. So when guests come to our website and place an order, we make it for them at that moment. So that helps reduce inventory and save resources. And it, it takes, what, a week from the time I order it till it arrives at my home about a little bit more? Yeah, it really depends on what it is. You know, we have a machine-made division that we make in our factory that's on the outskirts of the Muscle Shoals community. 
So some of those things can be made really quickly. And then we also continue since the last 22 years to work with these hand embroidery artisans. So some of the pieces that we make can take a month or more, just the making by hand. So it really depends on you know what the item is. And then you send it straight on to the person. There's no middleman. This seems like a very wise way of running a business. Slow fashion is a lean model too, isn't it? Yes. I mean, the way we work would be considered what they call lean method manufacturing. So we purchase raw materials and we keep the raw materials stored until it's ready to be produced for someone. And you source everything more or less in America? It's mixed. I mean, we do have a unbroken supply chain for cotton. We work primarily in organic cotton jerseys and other organic cotton knits. 90% of our materials are grown in Texas and processed in North Carolina and come to us here. I'm not against outsourcing. I'm for outsourcing for a good reason. So, for example, we buy some threads from Northern Europe that are organic and really beautifully made, have the highest quality quality thread means that the seams stay stronger longer and, you know, will remain in someone's wardrobe for a longer period of time. It's so true. The strongest thread I have in my sewing box was my great-grandmother's really good cotton thread from Texas in the 1920s. And it was a big spool and it was just, you know, basic black. And it still says like on the wooden spool that it cost five cents for this spool of yarn. Maybe it was from the 30s. And I still use it. And whenever I repair anything with that thread, it never comes undone. Yeah, Quality thread is key. It really is. And, you know, in the sustainable design world, we always talk about price per wear or price per use. Something may be more expensive, but it's important that it stays in your wardrobe for a long time. And you know, that favorite t-shirt or that favorite dress that you have that you've had for 20 years and <laughs> and you wear over and over again becomes a part of your life, you know, collects all the it certainly does as you move through your life. So let's talk about the t-shirt I'm wearing. It comes from Alabama Channon. It's my favorite t-shirt. I live in it. I work in it. I garden in it. I travel in it. I sleep in it sometimes. And it has a really wonderful backstory. Can you tell us the story about the the cotton <laughs> project in Alabama? We had been working in cotton for 20 years at that point. And a friend of ours, KP McNeil, once questioned me, what could it look like if we raised the organic cotton in our community and tried to find a way to process from field all the way to shelf in our own community. And KP at the time was working with Billy Reed, who was also based in Florence. Correct. And they're at Imogene and Willie now. Uh, he and his wife, Katie, who are still doing Exactly. In Nashville, Tennessee. Correct. You know, I had thought about it, but it was really interesting. And the more we had these conversations, KP was like, well, we have a little plot of land that's not too far from here. Should we just try to plant six acres and see what happens? And so we set off on this project that wound up going on for two years to find the seed to, you know, all the way through the end, you know, the picking, the ginning, the knitting, the sewing. It took us two full years to process. And that T-shirt is, is one of the things that was the result of that wonderful experiment. <laughs> and it's so soft. It's so beautiful. Well, we wound up, we had sort of an old tractor that made the rows and, you know, we planted the seeds and we found out that there wasn't a harvester that would fit the way we had planted the rows. You know, we were real novices just 
flying by the seat of our pants. And so we wound up picking all the cotton by hand (laughs) over the course of the summer. And we had a lot of volunteers who came out and helped us pick the cotton. And consequently, the spinners let us know that it was the most beautiful cotton they had ever seen in their lives. It had almost no trash in it because we had picked every bowl by hand. No seeds, no sticks. (laughs) Even Lisa, who had helped manage the field, she named all the different plants and used to talk to them. So they were very well-loved cotton plants. Like I said, I'll have this shirt till the day I die. It's so (laughs) solid. It's so beautifully made. And this is the natural color cotton. It's not dyed. Correct. It's just this gorgeous ivory that's so pretty and so soft. Do you think you'll do something like that again? (laughs) Or was that just a one You never know. I always get caught up in some sort of crazy spirit and things like that. Well, you have a new book out. <laughs> I do, yes. Called Embroidery, Threads and Stories from Alabama Channon and the School of Making. You've written this book for your 21st anniversary of being in business as Alabama Channon. That's right. Now, why did you choose 21 years and not 20 or 25? Well, we definitely had intended on that coming out at 20 years and, you know, COVID and all of those things happened. And so it just took us longer to get the project together. And so we just embraced as it came and just decided to celebrate 21 years, which is an awesome number. You know, It's always been my favorite number anyway, 21. It is an awesome number. It's good luck. And it's so beautiful. I mean, you have sewing, but then you also have like pictures of your fields and pictures of your clothes and you have pictures of cloth and then you have pictures of the shoals. Can you explain what the shoals are? What do shoals mean? The shoals comes from the name muscle shoals. A lot of people think it's a mollusk, but it really has to do with the muscles of the arms. Before the Tennessee River was dammed, it was rather wide and shallow, and there were all these shoals in the river. And so if you traveled, you had to pick your boat up with the mussel and carry it over the shoals to get to the next part of the river. And so this became right. the muscle shoals community and, you know, was inhabited How by interesting. Native American Indians for a very, very long time. Now, you have a forward in your book written by your friend, Roseanne Cash the singer-songwriter. How did you all meet? We met through a dear friend. And, you know, when you meet someone and you feel like you've known them forever, it's like, hi, I've been waiting for you all these years. And so we just hit it off right from the bat. We've been told that we were soul sisters and that was indeed the case. I feel very lucky to have her. She wrote a beautiful Mm -hmm. song called A Feather's Not a Bird. And it's about her visit to Florence and to you and about getting a pretty new dress. And then visiting... The Magic Wall. Can you tell us about The Magic Wall? Yes. A dear friend of mine, Tom Hendricks, who's since passed away, constructed this monumental wall that was built in honor of his great-great-grandmother, who was a Yuchi Indian in our community. I guess Tom spent 35 years working on the wall. It's the largest freestanding rock structure in America and has come to be a Native American holy site. And so a lot of people go there. There's a healing circle there. It's just a very magical place, as you can attest. I know. I've been there. The energy changes. You feel something. There's something really magical and spiritual and otherworldly going on there when you go. The energy is incredible. And it's so peaceful. And it's in this forest, but just on the side of the road. It's not a 
big adventure. And it was, what, about a half an hour outside of town? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so Roseanne Cash went there too. You took her there and she equally felt the magic outside. She said, as I sat on the stone bench in the middle of the circle of stones, totems, and sacred objects, I closed my eyes and I felt something was meditating me instead of the other way around. Mm. which I thought was really beautiful way of describing it and a nice way to open your book. And then she wrote this fantastic song called A Feather's Not a Bird, which we'll listen to. that taught me years ago when I first met you and you actually taught my daughter when she was four years old was loving the thread. (laughs) Can you talk about what loving the thread is? And Roseanne Cash talks about loving the thread in her song. So can you tell us what loving the thread is and why it's important? So thread, when it's manufactured, is just an act of twisting. So it's like spinning. You just take the fiber and you twist it. So there's not really anything holding the fiber together except this, the physical act of torque and tension. What happens, you know, when you first start sewing, everybody has come across the, the threads tangle. It's called knotting. You get knots in your thread, but it's really just... Oh boy, do you. <laughs> it's really just a tangle. So if you'll just run your fingers over the thread. Pulling the thread right between the index and the thumb correct. over and over again. You can actually feel the thread starting to release some of this excess tension. And, you know, at the same time, you're 
coating the thread with the oils of your fingers. So what happens is you release that excess tension as you begin to sew, the thread won't tangle as much. That was so kind of Roseanne Cash to let us play this song on our podcast. What did you think when you first heard the song and that you learned that she was writing a song about you and your company and your town? Well, of course, I couldn't believe it. She was exploring the South and obviously where her family was from, where she was born. You know, they traveled all the way down to Arkansas. And she and I sat in the studio one day while they were here. And I was teaching her how to sew. And John was picking on the guitar. (laughs) And it was just a lovely day. So I never imagined that the song would come out of it and that she would go on to win Grammys for the song, the album, the performance. Um, um, Yeah, it's uh, obviously, there's a lot of magic wrapped up in this. Also, music is very important in the whole Florence, Alabama area. Every year, until the pandemic, Billy Reed hosted a shindig in which you also participated with a fundraising dinner every year for the Southern Foodways Alliance. That's right. And Billy would have all this great music. He'd have Jack White, and he'd have beautiful singer-songwriter John Paul White, and he'd have the Texas Playboys, and there'd be a softball game. It was great fun. It gets people really into Florence, Alabama in a nice way and shows that it's also a fashion capital with a runway show and with your dinner and tours of the factory. Why is Florence such a fashion capital? Was it always a fashion capital and we just didn't realize it? The whole community has a really interesting history. You know, the music goes so much further back than as today. Of course, with the fame studios and all the recording in the Muscle Shoals region, but even deeper, farther back. Yes. W.C. Handy, who's considered the father of the blues, was born here. There's a really beautiful documentary about Muscle Shoals. Our friend Tom Hendricks is in the movie talking about the river and how the river was really a beautiful part of the creation story of the Yuji Indians and their healing arts. And, you know, Helen Keller is from Tuscumbia, wrote a lot about beauty. There's this real sense of appreciation for beauty healing songs has a deep history in our community so all around the beautiful river yeah and you also hold a conference every year called project threadways where you continue this idea that's the subject of the book you know threads and stories about sewing and about how this is part of our culture and part of our lives and part of our history Can you tell us a little bit about your Project Threadways Symposium? NAFTA became enacted in 1995. And before that time, this little community had been known as the T-shirt capital of the world. And it was a vertical operation. So the cotton was grown, gin, you know, spun, cut, sewn, shipped. And all of these great musicians were recording in Muscle Shoals. They were going on tours around the country, around the world. And a lot of those T-shirts were being made six miles from the recording studio in the building where we are. And so after NAFTA was signed, the industry just fell apart in our community. All those jobs moved offshore, or at least out of the United States. Correct. Much of it to Mexico and Central America, but Mm -hmm. then it went to Southeast Asia. Correct. In the big move of globalization, which we thought was great, but it was kind of gutting communities across America, especially across the South. That's right. And so when I came back, you know, a lot of the people I was working with had worked in the textile industry. And at some point it occurred to me, these people were getting older. They all had their stories to tell about the heyday. And so we started collecting oral histories 
in 2003 of textile workers, farmers, everybody who had worked in and around the community. And as we began to collect the stories and as my business started to grow, there's always this question of being in Alabama and working in cotton. And there's a lot of history and a lot of questions around that. Honestly, I felt like I didn't have the words to be able to have these big, hard conversations. And so Project Threadways grew out of this desire to be able to look unflinchingly at that past and what that means. And there's so much that had not been documented. And we're really lucky in our community to have a strong public history program at the university here. And we were able to partner with historians and start to crack these things open. And it's not just there. It was all over the South. I remember I drove to see you from Nashville to Florence, and I just kept driving through all these towns that, you know, you could see were once thriving economically and were now just down at the heel. And it was heartbreaking, heartbreaking to see. And you could really feel the impact of the NAFTA legislation. Now we have a lot of reshoring going on and jobs are coming back to the United States and to Europe that fled offshore during the 1990s and early 2000s. Do you see a return happening in Florence as well? I mean, you're doing your thing and Billy Reed, of course, is there. Is there other movement in the area in the garment industry? Absolutely. I mean, all across the South, there are factories that are reopening and... A renaissance of sorts. Correct. Correct. Which, of course, is perfect since Florence is a city in Italy that is the home of the Renaissance. And now we're having a Renaissance in Florence, Alabama. Well, it's all across the region. It's great to see all these young people coming up and coming home and building up industry for their communities. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability and transparency from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, at its flagship boutique, 384 Bleecker Street in New York City, and at select stores. This episode is also sponsored by Phlox, a personal style consultancy and high fashion vintage retailer where responsible fashion meets creativity, individuality, and beauty. Developing your own personal style and buying what's you is the key to sustainability. Phlox presents timeless modern vintage clothes with a heavy dose of glamour. To shop and learn about available services, visit Phlox, that's P-H-L-O-X dot com, or follow them on Instagram at Phlox Slow Fashion. If you're enjoying this episode of The Green Dream, check out my interview with Oliver Jeffers a Northern Irish artist and an award-winning author of children's books, including Here We Are, Notes for Living on Planet Earth, which was a number one New York Times bestseller published by HarperCollins. Now back to my guest, Natalie Channon, founder and head of Alabama Channon, a slow fashion brand in Florence, Alabama, that proves it is possible to make beautiful clothes with integrity and with respect for humanity and the planet. In celebration of Alabama Channon's 21st anniversary, Natalie Channon has written a new book called Embroidery, Threads and Stories from Alabama Channon and the School of Making, published by Abrams. 
Now, speaking of home, let's talk about how you got to moving back. As you said, you returned home and you started this slow fashion company and you did this 21 years ago or a bit more now. Can you tell us your path to get to this epiphany where you needed to go home and do things the old fashioned way? And you actually belonged to the industrial fashion business for a long time, didn't you? You were a part of the machine. Yes. When I graduated university, I went to work in the junior sportswear industry and worked in that industry for quite a while. And you were on Seventh uh, Avenue, as we used to say. Avenue and you know we sold at Macy's on the third floor and <laughs> and then I, I sort of switched and I turned to the other side I worked as a stylist for 10 years you know sort of selling the clothes that were being made faster and faster you know this was sort of the beginning of the fast fashion movement and so I took a sabbatical and came back to New York and started sewing things by hand myself and was looking for manufacturers in the New York fashion industry, in the garment district, and you know, really couldn't find anyone to help. And, you know, and this was when the, the garment district was already starting to fall apart itself with all the offshoring following NAFTA, because it wasn't just Florence and the Carolinas that got wounded by that legislation and during the whole globalization movement, but the New York garment industry shrank dramatically. Yeah, you know, we talk a lot about that in Threadways, how quickly, you know, a region becomes global. So, you know, cotton may be grown here, but it's immediately goes outside of our region and even goes globally. So all of these stories that happened here are mirrored in New York and, you know, all over the world. It's a lot of fluctuations. But anyway, I was sewing all these things by hand and couldn't really find anyone to help do this work in New York. And I just had this epiphany that this was a, like a quilting stitch that really was from my past, you know, learned by my grandmothers and was still practiced in this community. And so I had this idea that to do this work, I would need to come home. And, you know, I saw it as just like a little project that I was coming home for a month or two and I was going to do this project and then I was going to move on and back to my life and styling and film. And I'm still here. <laughs> You're still there. And there is a great tradition of quilting there. Talk about the bees. Aren't there some famous quilting bees in the area? That was the original thought that I had. My grandmother used to quilt at this little community center, which is sort of out close to where the magic wall is. It's very close to that region. And so that was my idea that I was going to work with these women who were friends of my grandmother's and who had quilted with my grandmother's and um, see if they could help me sew these t-shirts I was making. And so you know, I came home and interviewed them. I made a little documentary film about old-time quilting circles and talked to them about this project I wanted. And I was like, this is fashion. We're going to send this up to New York. And they were not interested at all. <laughs> but uh, I ran a little tiny ad in the newspaper that was just three lines. It said part-time hand sewing and quilting and had a phone number to the little house I had rented. And um we got about 60 calls and about 20 women stuck and did the hand sewing and we've never stopped. We've kept on since that time. And you were selling these t-shirts then at places like Barney's. Yes. That first season we sold to seven stores around the world and very quickly it just kept going and the collection grew and, you know, 
22 years later, we're still hand sewing. And then I mentioned that Florence had been known as the t-shirt capital of the world. And the man who had the largest of those industries here, we rent a space from him that... It's like a warehouse kind of building. It's a big, long, low, metal corrugated sided kind of building. It was the largest of the sewing facilities in our community. And so we are now in the space where all of those t-shirts would have been sewn. And so he approached me about putting some machines back in and seeing if we could figure out how to make a t-shirt like the one you have on again in America. So we did. It was a challenge. (laughs) And I love that you put an ad in the local newspaper. What's the local newspaper called? The Times Daily. Times Daily. Back when we did things like that. It feels so analog compared to our lives now. So you gave up 7th Avenue. And what did you find to be the benefits of moving back to Florence beyond having your quilters, of course, versus working in New York, for example, or having this company in New York? How did this benefit your company, your ambitions in your life? I mean, I didn't come home thinking I'm going to start a sustainable brand. You know, I thought of this as a one-off project. And the more I was home, I started looking at things really through a microscope. You know, I always say I came to this through food. I was really shocked after having lived in Europe, how different the food was in the community. And so as you start to investigate, you see how much the farming and big food had changed the food that was available in my community and and how people eat how people eat and as i began to look at that i began to look at the cotton and think about the waste and it really informed all the decisions i started making like how can we make clothing more like the slow food movement how can we treat employees better you know what can we do to live, work, and exist in this community and try to contribute to the community to make it a better place. And the other advantage, Florence, of course, is that it costs less to run your company, right? That your rent isn't what it would be if you were in New York City or in Manhattan or even Brooklyn. What you're paying your employees is much lower because their cost of living is so much lower. I mean, every time I come see you, there are lots of really hip folks working for you. So you clearly can recruit people to come live and work in Florence, Alabama. Is that part of the allure too, that it's a more affordable life and just a less insane one? As we all know, there's definitely been a movement away from larger cities and back to smaller, more manageable regions. And we've definitely seen the benefit of this movement. And, you know, sometimes you miss part of being part of that industry by not being in New York, but you know, there's benefits to both sides. Absolutely. Plus you have Bunyan's barbecue down the street. <laughs> which yeah, is we have a great food culture. Very here. good food culture <laughs> and microbreweries and, and a recording company that John Paul White has. So it's actually kind of a bustling, somewhat cosmopolitan town now. It is. We have a lot going on here. The music industry, different kinds of creative industries have moved in. And so that's definitely given us a young culture, which we all love. Now, in my book, Fashionopolis, I profile your life and your business and muscle shoals and all of it to talk about the slow fashion movement. And one of the quotes that is more quoted, I think, than any other line in the whole book is when you said you were at a dinner party one time and somebody started complaining about how expensive your clothes were. And you said, yes, they are, maybe with an expletive mixed in. They absolutely are, and they should be because I pay my people right. And I think that that's something that comes up all the time when I'm talking at conferences or I'm talking at book signings or I'm talking anywhere or I'm doing radio call-ins or, you know, people say, but I can't afford this or why is sustainable fashion so expensive? It's beyond my means. To which I say, 
you know, but part of the reason it's beyond your means is because you're not paid what you're worth either. And so this is all of a piece and that we should all be demanding to be paid what we're worth. And then we can afford to do things properly and pay what we should be paying for clothes and making sure that the people who made them are paid right. And I always thought that that was just a really important and strong message that you put out through Alabama Chan, and that if you're going to buy something that's made of organic cotton, that it's either entirely or partially hand-sewn, that it's made to order, that it's made in America, that the workers are paid right, that they're treated right, that they live a good life, they're not living in shanties in Bangladesh and their kids are sleeping under the work tables and they're working two jobs and they have no benefits and they have no vacation. You know, that we don't want to treat our fellow citizens that way, so then we need to pay for the goods as we should and to make sure that they're well taken care of and respected as well. And I've always found that very admirable for you. And I love how you just defend it like, well, yeah, of course. Do you think that that is the way it should be, that sustainable fashion will always be more expensive? Or do you see the prices coming down now that it's becoming more mainstream? During the pandemic, we've seen, I think it's sort of the opposite. Like we are paying what it actually costs to make a garment. And you've seen other prices rise up to kind of meet ours more closely. Interesting. As supply chains get fragile and the costs rise, we still have this kind of unbroken system that we've invested in. And I say to people, really, all you have to do is start at the price and work backwards. You know, if you find a $10 t-shirt, for example, you just cut the price in half because whoever's selling it, they have to make money. Everybody along the way has to make money and thrive in a positive way for the supply chain to stay solid, right? And so if you start to work back on some things, you get back to something costing a quarter. And, you know, if you begin to think about what that takes to grow the cotton, to gin it, to spin it, to knit it, to cut it, to sew it, to ship it. To packaging the whole kit. This is the most basic thing with no bells and whistles or any kind of design added into it. You pretty soon get to a point where you can't really justify or understand who's making that quarter or how much is the human involved getting from that quarter, you know? And so- When you begin to think about things that way, our prices are really not that. And I do think you have to think about price per wear. You know, is this something you're going to have in your closet for a decade? Forever. <laughs> and Like my T-shirt. Yeah, and then you break. I mean, already I've got this T-shirt from you in 2016. We're 2022. That's six years for a life of a T-shirt that is worn all the time and it's showing nowhere. It's only getting softer. Thank you. So clearly I'm getting a good price per wear. <laughs> We do strive for that, you know, that we make garments that are here for life. For life. That's it. That's part of the whole message that we have here at the Green Dream of buy less, buy better, which I think is a core tenet of the slow fashion movement. It's wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Natalie Channon, for taking the time to speak with us today on The Green Dream and to tell us about your book, Embroidery, Threads and Stories from Alabama Channon and the School of Making, and about the Project Threadways Symposium, which we can attend in Florence, Alabama, or we can listen to it online when it comes around in every April. Thank you so much. It's just been a delight to have you on the program. Thank you, Dana. I love seeing you as always. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, 
a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency, from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, at its flagship boutique, 384 Bleecker Street in New York City, and at select stores. This episode is also sponsored by Phlox, a personal style consultancy and high fashion vintage retailer where responsible fashion meets creativity, individuality, and beauty. Developing your own personal style and buying what's you is the key to sustainability. Phlox presents timeless modern vintage clothes with a heavy dose of glamour. To shop and learn about available services, visit Phlox, that's P-H-L-O-X dot com, or follow them on Instagram at Phlox Slow Fashion. New episodes of The Green Dream come out the first and third Tuesday of the month. So we'll be back in two weeks with Vanessa Nakate, the award-winning 25-year-old Ugandan climate activist and author of A Bigger Picture, My Fight to Bring a New African Voice to the Climate Crisis, a manifesto and memoir about how to build a livable future for all. The paperback will be published by One Boat this month. We hope you'll join us. This episode of The Green Dream was written by Dana Thomas from Talkbox Productions with executive producer Tavia Gilbert with mix and master by Kayla Elrod. Music performed by Eric Brace of Red Beat Records in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Dana Thomas, the European Sustainability Editor for British Vogue. You can read my monthly column, also called The Green Dream, in the magazine or online at vogue.co.uk. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter where my handle for both is Dana Thomas Paris. Thank you for listening.